This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We first knew him as the commander of the UN peacekeeping forces in Rwanda, where he was traumatized by witnessing that terrible genocide and guilt-ridden because he couldn't stop it. Despite his very senior leadership role, he was dismissed from the military in April 2000 because of his PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, and Canadians became widely aware he was still haunted later that year when it was widely reported that he was found near comatose from a mix of scotch and antidepressants beneath a park bench near his hull home. Despite all of that, he went on to chronicle the slaughter in the award-winning book, Shake Hands with the Devil, and to become one of the world's leading humanitarians. Former Lieutenant General and former Senator Romeo Dallaire is a tireless advocate for mental health human rights, and children affected by war. He is here to talk about his new memoir, Waiting for First Light, My Ongoing Battle with PTSD. Welcome and thank you so much for being here. Nice of you to have us here. First of all, how are you? Reasonable and uh, feisty when required, but uh, at a, a stage where uh, I can conduct a, a decent day's work. That's good. How long did it take you to get there? Oh, uh, uh, it it came in waves. I mean, uh, right from the start coming back, I, I was full-time employed uh, because I didn't even recognize I had an injury. Um, and uh, until I actually crashed in 98 for over six months and then was able to do uh, a bit of work, but came back uh, full force for a year and a half. But that was taking such a toll that they medically released me. And then from then on, I've been uh, working uh, uh, reasonably full time. And then in the Senate, of course, uh, the, I went full full time with a number of other activities and continued to keep myself very, very busy. One of the things you write about is that when it comes to post-traumatic stress, there, there's no time limit on it. No, in fact, time can be a very negative influence in as much as uh, if it's not treated early, like any other injury, uh, it will fester and it will get worse and it's sort of like a cancer, it continues to grow uh, and grow in a way of creating more and more uh, of negative impacts on the individual, uh, on the individual's psyche and the individual's ability to uh, function within a normal sort of set of circumstances. And that just requires more therapy and more medication and, of course, so much more patience from people around them. You write very movingly and very candidly about trying to harm yourself, um, not so much uh, necessarily a, an overt suicide attempt, but trying to kill yourself accidentally. Well, it, uh, it, it, it's all different means of achieving the same aim, of, of uh, trying to uh, stop the pain and find a way of uh, 
reducing the impact of that injury that may have on others that uh, are around you who suffer by this, the consequences of what you end up doing. And so uh, you want to uh, stop that. Uh, and in extremists, yes, you, you do commit suicide. We, we know we've had a number of soldiers from the Afghan war who've committed suicide since then. Um, we find other means, uh, uh, you know, from drugs to booze to pornography to to just eating disorders uh, and and the like. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you are working constantly at trying to find alternatives uh, versus necessarily finding the solution to the problem. Uh, so, you drove recklessly. Um, you also talk in the book about uh, cutting yourself. Mm -hmm. what, what made you do that? Uh, 40 pounder of scotch. Uh, that was the start anyways. But it was uh, a, uh, um, just an idea, you, you know, you, of, of people who, who commit suicide by cutting their veins. But uh, instead of, uh, instead of uh, overtly being suicidal with that circumstance, what I was, I I found that uh, in attempting to cut, uh, that the 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 blood flowing was a very warm and soothing uh, impact, and the smell of blood was 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 bringing back a an atmosphere that I that I could communion with, and so I just kept on cutting and it became more and more of a uh, of a, a a warm feeling of 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 release but um you also talk about being unable to uh being haunted by the smell of blood from the genocide you witnessed yeah the the, the smell however of blood when it sit it sits there and coagulates and is in there in the scale of what we're talking about it overwhelms uh, any nostril, uh, and uh, mixed in with uh, the different decaying bodies uh, and uh, the uh, smell of of um, gunpowder and and burning buildings and shacks and latrines and everything, all those things put together, uh, they they tend to create. Um, more than just a, uh, a smell, it's, it's like a fog uh, that that sort of lays on you and, and enters literally your pores. Uh, so you've talked about soldiers coming back and committing suicide. Why is the military so slow to recognize the problem to help people, even slow, I mean, not recognizing these as, as a death from battle? Well, they were slow because, one, we had no experience. We had lost all our, our wartime skills uh, of taking care of people of that nature. And even during the previous wars, it was very poor in the capacity of how to help people, uh, Mental health uh, was was uh, stigmatized and and the like, uh, and there wasn't that much capacity, anyways. Uh, so we were stumbling really in a completely unknown scenario, 
Uh, and because of the nature of, of the military, the police, the firemen, anybody who wears uniform and proud of their uh, milieu uh, tends to seek to not uh, not try to disgrace it. And so because there was such a, a, a negative perspective of this type of injury, which they couldn't see, uh, people tended to want to hide it, which made it all the more difficult for organizations to comprehend what was happening to those individuals. Uh, and it, it held back uh, the help that should have come to the fore uh, by the seniors who didn't want to sort of give an encouragement that that can be an injury. Uh, is it kind of part of a macho type culture? The 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 call. I mean, we're talking military here, so we're not talking Boy Scouts. And so uh, we send people into battle because we expect them to fight. We 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 build and inculcate in them a warrior ethic, uh, but we also provide them with a whole series of intellectual skills uh, that permit them to know what is right and what is wrong, and what is the proper use of force and how to use it and when. Uh, and so uh, that atmosphere uh, requires that you uh, maintain a level of, of, of confidence that is much higher than sort of in the norm of a, a working place. And then on top of that, you, you have to count on uh, the availability and the, uh, the abnegation of your colleagues to mutually support you in your moments of terrible risk uh, because you you can't win a war alone. And so all that type of atmosphere doesn't leave much room for somebody who can't meet that standard. And that standard is well beyond 100%. And so when something happens to one of the individuals where there might be a feeling of lack of confidence that he might not be totally up to scratch, that weakens the organizations and puts the others at risk. And that's why people either hide it or, or live on an adrenaline rush for a while anyways. Uh, and those who do demonstrate that they've got, they're injured, uh, there's a sort of sense that they've, they've let us down. They've, you know, they've, they've walked out, they've backed up. And that in an atmosphere uh, of confrontation where it requires people to be 100% confident, well, it's only... A, Amplified, and you'll find that in the police, and you'll find that in firemen and other areas too. Uh, it's it's interesting. Uh, you're talking about the culture being at fault because um, often when we see this issue, the way it's it's presented, um, you know, we tend to blame the government. They're not doing enough. So, um, where is government responsibility and and uh, the military brass and and are they starting to meet this challenge? Yeah, well, you know, the, the government, uh, we tend to forget that the government is us. Uh, and we tend to do, uh, some of us vote, and then we sort of abdicate whatever the responsibility to some people in Ottawa and then uh, spend a lot of time complaining about it. But the essence of uh, how to handle this problem is, in fact, a, the, this sort of covenant between the people of a country and those members of that community that are prepared to volunteer to for their way of how to think, how they feel themselves as a good citizen, is to volunteer to commit themselves into an unlimited liability scenario to defend the others. And I think that's magnificent that we have people who are, who are doing that. 
however, uh, when we do have these volunteers who go into that scale of commitment, we've got to have a program that also equates to that. And what we've seen over the years is the bureaucracies and the politicians uh, have not necessarily met that challenge. They've, they've fiddled at it with, with uh, a, a veterans charter that was uh, quite inept. They've uh, fiddled at it with uh, rules, regulations, uh, trying to imitate workman's compensation, uh, social contracts. And really, we're into a much higher plane of responsibility of the people through the government to the veterans and their families, and that's a covenant, a cradle-to-grave responsibility because that's where they're going. They're either going to the grave or they're going to be suffering, many of them, for the rest of their lives. And you don't turn that off uh, because it's uh, a rule that at 65, all of a sudden, they get no more compensation. Uh, That stays for life because they had committed their life to our life being better. I'm here with former Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire, also former Senator, humanitarian. He's talking about his memoir, Waiting for First Light. Um, He's talking about his PTSD that he still suffers from. I'm going to give the numbers once again. If you have questions, comments, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'd like to talk about your family and the toll this took on your family? Well, um, the world in which we're in now is such that the families live the missions with us because of the extraordinary capabilities of the media, of the marvels of communications. And so there's no more such thing as the families being isolated far away and not knowing what's going on. On the contrary, they're very much aware of it, and and that creates stresses and strains on them because they never know from one day to another. They're always listening on the TV or the radio and zapping just to make sure they they catch that glimpse of information of of us being captured or, or, or whatever. So uh, there is a very subtle but a constant stress on the families uh, of these missions. Uh, And when uh, individuals come back, uh, they have suffered the stresses of their mission in the field, but they find a family that's also been under stress and has been affected. And so the whole group has been readjusted, and uh, some families require some very professional help to be able to restabilize and come back down to a level of normalcy, uh, having lived this experience and, and the, the fears and traumas. Uh, and uh, others simply uh, don't even try to make it work and, and just bust up because there's just too much of that stress and the like. So in, in the case of my family, my mother-in-law made it clear that she would have not done World War II if she had to do what my wife went through for that whole year I was away uh, because there was just too much of living the mission and, and constantly being on, on, a, on a state of anticipation of, of nothing but the worst, of course. Um, you don't necessarily have an injury that uh, can be resolved by a prosthesis and you fix a few, a few stairs in the house and and adjust some of the furniture, and uh, you you try to make it easier for someone. Uh, you're talking with someone who seems normal, 
but who is to, uh, often totally unpredictable and uh, can be uh, li- uh, functioning at a, a whole different plane of normalcy than what you are. So you try but, to avoid the family. Yeah. So what what was the impact on your relationship with your wife, your relationship with your children? It uh, it, it by by design, really. Uh, that was facilitated by the fact that I was posted away from the family. I was uh, posted to Montreal, and then I was posted to to Ottawa. The family was in Quebec City, and they were well established there. and And there was a a reasonable comfort zone. They could rebalance themselves back into the community with now me being out of harm's way. Uh, it it made sense uh, at the time that uh, I would uh, go and work uh, and uh, come back on weekends and and the like and uh, be working through uh, this injury and trying to keep them uh, at as much a distance as I could. And uh, you were estranged from your children. Is that correct? Uh, It it sort of ended up in that indirect way. It never was so so overt. Uh, But we, we... we saw each other so little. And remember, in the Army, even before the, the war, we, I was always being in the combat arms. We were always deployed in different places and maneuvers. So they, they weren't necessarily expecting every night that I'd be home either. Uh, but in this case, it, uh, it, it made it such that they were living very much that uh, a life in Quebec City with their friends and school and community and Beth. And so uh, that sort of covered most of the bases. And um, are you now closer and have uh, has the relationship been repaired, if that's the right way of putting it? Yeah, no, repaired is not. I think I think what it is is, is that the, a relationship has, in fact, uh, come back to life. Uh, that there was always this knowing Dad was there, but not too sure exactly what it was. Now uh, I'm seeing that we communicate a lot easier. They're older, of course. They're no more teenagers, and they've got their families and the like. And that has uh, mellowed a lot of our thinking and our ability to communicate on subjects other than uh, the the uh, catastrophe that we all went through. And that was one of the uh, difficult arenas that all all us faces when we come back is that. The subject matter always comes back to uh, the trauma, to the problem. And it takes time uh, and uh, medication and therapy and so on to be able to move away from that single conversation and be able to see at other elements of life. Uh, uh, it's interesting. I, I, I think you said something to the effect of um, you come back and, and maybe your wife listens to you really carefully once, but the next time you bring it up, uh, she interrupts you and asks uh, if you took the garbage out. Yeah, well, it was it's a, sort of a bit of a an example of trying to to um, to describe that the stories are not stories that you want to necessarily uh, seek conversations in the family, uh, and because uh, you're speaking with such intensity and with such passion, and often uncontrolled, remembering that we're uh, not necessarily cured of this uh, injury, and in the first times we don't even know we have it. Um, uh, the conversation becomes very passionate, very powerful, and the descriptions can be uh, 
so foreign to our sort of moral references is that it, it, it creates a horrible toll on people who listen. And so uh, you've got all the emotional interfacing of, of two people who knew each other before who now are back together, but they're both influenced and different. Uh, and they're trying to establish communication, and the subject is something that's so horrific. I mean, that just does not create a conducive milieu to be able to uh, reestablish links. And so uh, there's a tendency to try to not go back down that route. Uh, and that's why we created the peer support system, so that you don't have to count on the family to listen and to try to understand. Uh, but in fact, you've got peers who are far more attuned and far more uh, uh, having lived elements of the of the emissions or the, the traumas who can uh, empathize much more easily and not be so emotionally engaged. What do you hope comes out of the writing of this book? No, the aim was very much to describe uh, the, the inner workings of this injury uh, uh, more than the physical workings of it. Uh, uh, it is to try to uh, bring forward what, what your, your, your soul, what your mind is really uh, struggling with. Uh, and that depth, I hope, of description uh, will help those who are uh, suffering to be able to now articulate clearer what's happening to them, to their family, to those around them. I think, uh, I hope it'll, it'll help those who know people who are uh, hurting from this injury, them being able uh, to comprehend more uh, what is the ugly side of this injury and what people are living with. And then those who have nothing to do with that, to educate them on the fact that this injury uh, is of such significance that it needs urgent care, it needs urgent support, uh, and certainly not be stigmatized as something uh, weird, but on the contrary, something that's simply not losing an arm, it's having your brain significantly affected. And uh, finally, uh, because we have to go soon, do you think that uh, we have made progress on this? Yes, oh, we have. We, and uh, not only have we made progress and uh, uh, Family Support Center created bodies uh, uh, that are helping veterans. Uh, we've got clinics, uh, Veterans Affairs, National Defense that have helped. Uh, I still am very concerned about the scale of suicides that are going on. I think the chain of command has got to be still more committed into it. Uh, and I'm uh, thankful that we've got a research institute now that's looking at the problem to try to reduce its impact in the future. Thank you so much, uh, former Lieutenant General, former Senator Romeo Dallaire. The book is called Waiting for First Light, My Ongoing Battle with PTSD. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.